Things change from one generation to the next. Attitudes, politics, technology, even lifestyles. But when it comes to business, there's one thing every generation has in common. The pursuit of excellence. Welcome to Generation Excellence. A conversation with next-gen leaders of family businesses who are working to preserve the past and innovate the future. And now, here's the host of Generation Excellence and a third-generation business owner himself, Jamie Michelson. Jamie? Welcome to another episode of Generation Excellence. Today is a really special one. Whenever I'm asked, who's your mentor? I answer, at the top of the list is my father, Jim Michelson. My guest today is my father, the chairman of our company, SMZ, and as you'll hear, the true keeper of the history of our agency and a welcome right now voice of hope and promise for the future. Jim is a member of the AdCraft Hall of Fame and an excellent public speaker, which will become quite obvious as you listen to the stories. My hope is that you'll find this a Hall of Fame episode. And for those who know my dad, he's not great at waiting. So here we go. Please enjoy episode 19 and welcome Jim Michelson to Generation Excellence. Welcome. This is a special episode of Generation Excellence where we talk about generational family businesses where I get to have someone who's a guest and a second generation of a family business and my father. Uh, so welcome to, I would, I'll say dad and welcome Jim to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. So we've talked about sort of the structure, you know, past, future, present, and flowing around through that. But take us back to January 1929 and tell us about the founding story of this agency. Well, that was before my time. I know, as you know, this founding story yeah. or have heard it. No, I understand that. Well, two, two, uh, two young guys who were um, friends in high school. Went to high school together, Central High School. Uh, graduated together. One was an artist. One didn't know what he was going to do. My father, Leonard Simons, was an artist. They went to work for a small company called Detroit Ad Service. And it was a small company. They had advertising clients. This is in 1926, I think, 25, something like that. Okay. And it's before TV, before radio. Um, and the proprietor, the owner, had kept making representations that he was going to make them principals or partners or whatever. And he, he, never, he never lived up to what he said he was going to do. So Leonard Simons said to my father, Larry Michelson, he said, um, I'm leaving. You know, you can come with me. We can do better on our own. So they're 25, 26-year-olds, not as kids. And uh, they decided to go on their own. And they had been working on a couple of local retail jewelry accounts that this guy had. This, his Hirschfield was the guy who ran Detroit Art Service, Ad Service. And one of the two, Simons or Michelson, had the idea that we should get a list of every single independent jeweler in the country. Because what they were doing when they were working for this company was making newspaper ads. They would, they would make newspaper ads for these jewelers. And they were pretty much cookie cutter kind of ads. And then the jeweler, the retailer could just put his own logo, his signature in at the bottom of the ad. So they decided, we'll get a, a list of every single jeweler in the country. And I think I remember my father saying there were 15 or 20,000 of them. Wow. Across the country back in the, in the 20s. And a, roughly 2,000 jewelers responded. They sent them a sample mat kit. 
this is what we would do for you on a monthly basis. And, and sent that out, 2,000 of them responded. And that's what they started their business as. They, they prepared uh, newspaper ads every month. It was kind of a crisis end of month thing where they would put these packages together. They'd mail them out to the 2,000 jewelers and they paid them a fee. And I don't know what it was. It was somewhere around two $300 a month. But times 2,000 jewelers was a lot. Yeah. So here were the kids making, I'm not sure on the number, it was either $25 or $50 a week one of the two my father told me that so that's what they were getting after having worked for four or five years so in the first six months starting in they went into business january 12th of 1929 which wasn't such a good year in retrospect to start a business but they were enterprising young kids so they each earned somewhere around fifty thousand dollars in that first six months from january to july and had no sense of money didn't know what right. to do and there was a printer that they worked with. His name was Aronson, Maury Aronson, who had actually helped set them up in business, bought them some furniture. He had a personal contact with the chairman of NBD, which was the biggest bank in Detroit. I think it was started by GN. National Bank of Detroit, right? National Bank of Detroit. Okay. And he said, I'll take, take you guys to introduce you to the chairman of NBD. So they go in, and I love the way my dad told the story. He said, this was an austere guy. He had a, you know, a, a high collar shirt. He was very formal. And he said his fiduciary position wouldn't allow him to make investment recommendations, but he would share his personal portfolio. And my dad said he opened his desk drawer. He took out this little piece of paper and he shared with Simons and Michelson in July, I think maybe August of 29, how he was invested. So Simons and Michelson walk out, they're slapping each other on the back, where are we smart guys? And they now have an investment portfolio plan. They take this money, $50,000, $40,000 each, and they invest it in the stock market. That was in August of 29, the market crashed. In yeah, October. we can see where this is going. <laughs> well, the one aspect of this, Simons was married. No, he wasn't married. It, 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 very, very shortly thereafter, I think. My father was single. He took $600 and put it in a safety deposit box in cash. I don't know why he did that. But when the crash came, he had $600 left in the safety deposit box. He chose to take that money and go buy a Packard Phaeton. You sort of have to look up what a Packard Phaeton was in 1929. It was like the ultimate luxury car. I've seen pictures of it. I never yeah, saw the car. Massive, it long, front end. long front end. It had a rumble seat. In the back, his sister used to tell me, my aunt, that my father used it as a chick magnet car. He would drive mm -hmm. around. The women would sit in the back in the rumble seat. Anyway, the purpose of that story was, so he buys this car in the spring or early in 1930, and he's making a presentation to a company in Detroit. It was a paint company called Acme White Lead. I, I believe. It was on St. Albans, I remember. And... The, the head of the company was one of the Ford WizKids who went on to become the head of Gillette. His name was Boone Gross. And my father's making the presentation and it starts to rain. This is the spring of 30. Mm -hmm. And he says to the guys presenting to, can you excuse me? I have to go put my top up. And they look out the window. My father's out there putting the top up on this Packard Phaeton. He's 25. And, and he comes back and the Boone Gross says to him, I don't want you to say another word. He said, any kid who's either lucky enough or smart enough to drive that car in the height of a depression, I want working for me. And he hired him on the spot. 
And the interesting part of that story, 1930, that company got sold and in whatever iteration it was, we worked for what was Acme White Lead at that time, was purchased ultimately by Sherwin-Williams from 1930 into the 80s. Out of that investment from that, that car. So that was good. Yeah, even today, clients that we talk about 20, 30, whatever years, you know, it's a 50-year relationship. What were, what were some of the other, so they have the, the mat service with this list of, you know, getting the artwork to jewelers, which became ad kits. We now call them online ad planners, but the, the, the jewelry clients, Acme, Acme Paints, what were some of the other early Cornerstone clients or that they built the business on? You know, I, I think in, in that area, you, you, you knew people, you met people, um, they, they, were, they were friends or contacts, and they, were, they generally were people who owned their own businesses. So uh, a gentleman named Nate Shapiro, who was the founder of Cunningham Drugstores, he was a pharmacist by, by trade, and they met him. He um, hired them, this I think in 1931-32, which is a pretty substantial piece of retail business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nate Shapiro encouraged them to join a country club, and they didn't, you know, they did, and they met uh, a gentleman named Paul Zuckerman who owned Velvet Peanut Butter and Crunchy Potato Chips. It was those kinds of relationships. So they, those, the early clients, they had quite a few retail clients. They had a supermarket chain, one of the earliest ones in Detroit. Um, but their primary business in the first several years was the mat service. Was still the jewelry mat service. It was yeah. so time consuming and so demanding. They did branch it out into clothing stores. I recall that in, in talking to my father and Leonard. The, uh, they did the same thing with clothing stores. and They had several hundred of those. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's some of these things are almost timeless discussion, like multi-unit retail marketing organizations with founders or entrepreneurs. I mean, you could change the dates, but it well, and, be and, similar. And, one of the offshoots of that was when they would make these jewelry ads, they would go to the manufacturers. They were principally uh, diamond manufacturers or watch people or, you know, the stuff that you would see in a retail jewelry ad. And my father met um, Kay, K-A-Y. I can't remember his first name, but they're one of the top jewelers in the country today. It was a small operation then. I think they were headquartered in New Jersey. And, um, he was one of the first people who signed up and he ended up with more than one jewelry store. He had four or five. So my father developed a relationship and that, that was back during the era of, of speakeasies and Kay was a big gambler and he took my father to, he would take him to these gambling halls where my father learned to play craps. And so, uh, um, one of the early, early retail type clients for full service was Kay Jewelers. I recall that. Wow. And then, so you're, you're, the business is, you know, 12, 13 years old, you're born, Papa, as I call them, Larry, you know, Larry or Lawrence Michelson's married. And what is your first memory of exposure to the business, either around the table at home or clients being there or actually visiting the office? Well, my, my dad was a, was the true proponent of, of the old adage, you know, if you love what you do, you, you're not really working. Okay. He loved the business. He talked, he lived the business. Uh, he would come home and he had all the 
there were a lot of trade journals back then. I mean, he lived advertising. He was totally loyal. So all the clients that they had, we as a family, uh, they, had a, they had the Pepsi-Cola bottlers group was one of the early clients. They had Pepsi in the fridge. You had valid peanut yeah. butter in the house. Yep. A- absolutely. I, there was one occasion where, where my father, who rarely went into the kitchen because he had no concept of how to cook or whatever, but he, for some reason he opened the refrigerator and there was a Coke bottle in there because my sister didn't like Pepsi. And I, I have a recollection of him having an absolute conniption and hollering at her and talking to her about loyalty. <laughs> and and he, he, he did, he told a story about the, the, the Pepsi bottler was Dawson. Dawson. And um, Dawson became one of the big uh, gold cup hydroplane racers, you know, in the Dawson Museum downtown. But he tells the story of of Dawson having a boat on the Detroit River and being out for a cruise or something on Saturday. And his dentist, Dawson's dentist, goes by in his boat and he salutes Dawson, the Pepsi bottler, by holding up a bottle of Coke. And the story, whether it's apocryphal or not, is, as my father would tell it, that, that, that Dawson took out his dentures that this, and took them and threw them into the river. <laughs> that, that's how. So my father always told me that that was, that was what loyalty was always about. So, and, and I mean, just, just somebody who, who, this was true. He loved Monday and was depressed on Friday. <laughs> They're the Most, reverse of what do they call it? Sunday scaries now or whatever. I, I, yeah. I think so. I think the work environment was 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 calmer. Was not was not quite as intense. My mother was kind of a high. Um, what would you say? Uh, you know, energy person, and she was, and 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 so my father. I think the escape was 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 the advertising business. Sure. And he the advertising business. So so you know so you're you're around it. I guess like I was, it's, it's, it's osmosis. It's there. You're in the business and, and you're in school, you're in high school looking to go to college. Were you always going to track into the family business, into the advertising business? No, I, 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 I had an interest in, in finance, mm-hmm. in investment banking. I, my brother-in-law was, was in that. It wasn't like today where, you know, young people aspire to do that because that's where all the money was. It's just what my interest was. And I actually worked for two summers while I was in college uh, in New York. I got a job at Goldman Sachs um, through a friend of my father's. And um, I thought that's what I was going to do. I remember coming home, Jamie, um, it may have been between junior and senior year, whatever it was. But I sat down with my dad. We were talking. He had never tried to put pressure on me going into the business. But we're having a conversation. And I asked him, I said, if you had to live your life over again, what what would you have done differently? Hmm. And my dad was the kind of person who would pretty much answer you right away. Right. He he didn't. He really didn't. He, He stopped and he reflected and he said, nothing. Okay, nice. And I said, does that apply to work? He said, yeah. He said, I love what I do. He said, because this business isn't work because you're doing everybody else's business all the time. Mm -hmm. It's never boring. And he kind of got me 
very interesting. I thought if he was that passionate about it, and, and that really was the motivation, the inspiration that made me make that decision and that I was going to. Yeah, I mean, you're, I mean, you're talking about at that time, a 40 year old company at that time, right? A 30 year old company at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been around, but funny how we think about it at now at 91, but it was a 30 year old business when you're having those conversations. So you, you joined the business after college, after some military reserve duties and, and are, are working downtown. Talk, I guess talk about how you know, the, that worked as far as your father, his partner, who's a strong-willed person, and some of the other people there. Just the, the early days for your start. Well, there was sort of an anti-nepotism rule, if you can believe in this small business, because mm -hmm. Leonard Simon's daughter married a guy who came into the business and who I've heard through both of the founders was, uh, was uh, lazy, handsome but lazy as Leonard described him. And um, Leonard was a very tough business guy. I mean, he, he was very demanding. And he didn't like this fellow who was married to his daughter. And he, he said by day he was beaten at him, not physically, but emotionally, I guess. Mm -hmm. And his daughter ended up divorcing the guy. And Leonard always felt that one of the motivators for that was because he was beating on the guy by day. He would take it home and take it out. Of it. So he thought family being in the business was, you know, something you had to be somewhat careful of. So the rule was when I came in that I would work for Leonard. Okay. Like there was this Chinese wall sort of, well, it was a, a small company. They were right. But, but that that would be a better circumstance. Well, my father was the consummate account guy. He was sweet. He was, uh, he was considerate. Leonard was a bull. He was a, he was a bully. And I say that in respect to the fact that he was a financial genius, but account service was not his thing because right. ultimately he would get into fights in the, so I started out working for him, but the couple of the clients that he had me working on, there was a beer, I recall, Pfeiffer beer. He got in a fight with the guy who was the head of the brewery and he would ultimately have to turn the clients over to my father or they would mm. walk out the door. A little bit of a cleanup had to happen. The save team would have it, to come it was in. Yeah. Because, you know, the first call that Leonard would make if they were two days late in paying the bill was you're late paying the bill. Well, you know, you're, you're, they're clients. You have, to, you have to treat them with respect. Anyway, in a very short period of time, I became really a, a, sort of an assistant working for my father. But um, the biggest account that we had was the liquor account, was the liquor account. And I didn't work on it because I didn't drink. And I don't know if you want that, that story where... Well, I mean, just, no, I mean, I think the... Entering the business is part of it, who you worked for, but then the key accounts or the things that, I mean, everybody today uses the word pivot for things that changed. I think you would, I don't put words in your mouth, but the, the agency changes some a lot based on the clients you have or lose or get, right? Yeah. So, so, so the Hiram Walker business was already, I mean, you, the, the agency had that as a client before you worked on it, correct? 
well, the, it was it was kind of an inactive account when I joined. Okay. Um, I joined in in 1964. One of the biggest accounts was a competitive liquor account called Aero Liqueurs, and they were the largest selling vodka, gin, and they had a cordial line. And it was very successful. And my father and the company had started with Tom McMaster, who was the owner of that company, probably back in the 50s, and helped to build that into something very, very successful. They did have a little small piece of business from Hiram Walker, but it was much smaller than the Arrow thing. And the interesting part of the Arrow story was that um, after, after he had been successful in the cordial business, the vodka business, Tom McMaster wanted to get into the Scotch whiskey business. And Simons Michelson Company then conducted focus groups and did all the pre-planning and everything. And they put names into a focus group for a Scotch whiskey. And my father at the 11th hour put the guy who owned it, his name was McMaster. They thought that was kind of his. So my father put the name in, and McMaster, Tom McMaster said, no, you can't do that. Cause he said, I don't drink. He's the owner of this liquor company hmm. and everybody knows it. My father said, well, that doesn't matter. You're talking to consumers. Anyway, they put the name McMaster. McMaster overwhelmingly is the choice. That's a good name. name. Yep. And so they started um, a program back in, I think maybe 62, 63 to introduce McMaster Scotch and McMaster's Canadian. And over a period of a few years, they built it into the largest selling Scotch whiskey, uh, not not it, what they said, bottled in USA. So you had Cuddy Sark, you had J&B, they were imported from Scotland in bottles. There was a movement afoot to, to import whiskey in barrels, and then you'd pay tax on the barrel so the retail mm -hmm. price would be significantly different where where Cuddy Sark was $8 a bottle, a bottle in US, because it came in in barrels, would cost $5, whatever it was. But they built it into the number one seller. And Tom McMaster said to my father, he said, you can have this account as long as you want. Look what you've done for me, you know. Maybe two, two, three months after that, he decides to sell the company. <laughs> and he sells to Hubline out of Connecticut. And he said to my father, I, I sold this company. I talked to the owner of Hubline, the president of Hubline. His name was Ralph Hart. And he said, I told him that Larry Michelson and Simon's Michelson Company are as much responsible for building this business as I am. And I want you to protect him. And, and he said, Ralph Hart said, and he tells my father, and I'm in the meeting when he tells him this, um, you can have this business as, as long as you want it. It was probably two weeks later that my father got a phone call, not from Hart, not from Hubline, but from the advertising agency okay. that had the Hubline account to tell him to package everything up. And send it our way. This is, so we had this little piece of business from Hiram Walker. It was a, it was a, it was a Scotch whiskey called Lauders, L-A-U-D-E-R-S, Lauders Scotch, which was fairly popular in, in, in Europe, in London, in Scotland. But here it sold two, 3,000 cases. They, they really hadn't put anything behind it. So my father was absolutely, totally motivated by what had happened, that he was going to somehow get, get even, even, get 
from work so for it. Yeah. It, but but Hiram Walker didn't believe in discounted products. He didn't believe in the concept of importing something in a barrel and having it. And I think my father worked with them for a year and showed them the figures because he no longer had the arrow account. He could show them what happened. Finally, they agreed. Hiram Walker agreed. They would, as an experiment, they would take this lauder scotch and they would agree to import it in barrels and it would be a, a bottle in USA scotch to compete with McMaster's. Hmm. And my father was very, very marketing savvy then. He decided that they would, they would spend six months in market lauder scotch at its higher price. Lauder scotch, $8. With the understanding that six months from now, when they started bottling it in the U.S., they could cut the price by three. So the original advertising was just to establish the brand a little bit so that when they finally decided to import it in barrels, they could say in the advertising, Lauder Scotch was $8, now $5. Now your Scotch dollar buys more. And my father had the vision to, he found, we had a small plant um, called the U.S. Coin Exchange. Jerry Wolberg, who is a personal friend of mine, uh, they found a coin that was minted in the 1600s. It's the only coin, Scottish coin, that was ever designated parenthetically as a dollar. Scotch dollar. Yes, yeah, Scotch dollar. So yeah, we Scotch bought dollar. that. It cost $20,000. Walker bought the coin. And the advertising then was, now your Scotch dollar, as the symbol buys more. It took from, I don't know, 65, 66, 19 to maybe 75, 74, 75, where Lauder Scotch finally caught up to and passed McMaster Scotch. And as a reward to Simon's Michelson Company and all of us, Hiram Walker took us to Scotland to the distillery. I think that was in 1974. Too. So, it, you know, after all that period of time, that was his probably his greatest success story. Yeah, it's a, it, I mean, it's branding and promotional and a big idea. It's all the stuff everybody searches for today. Yeah. I mean, we, in the early days, I, I didn't mention Leonard, Leonard had um, a son-in-law. The, the daughter married another guy who was very smart and very savvy and, and was a creative guy. He actually uh, went to Wayne and then he got his master's in music and theater from Stanford. He was the younger Mordzeev. Yep. So we're now Simon's Michelson's Eve. Mordzeev was the youngest television director in the United States. He worked at Channel 7, WXYZ, back in the days of live TV. You had the Soupy Sales show when you had Auntie D, and so Mort did that. And then um, he, he couldn't come into the company because of what had happened with right. his wife's previous. So he went to work for another agency in town called uh, Stone and Simons. Stone and Simons had both worked for Simons Michelson Company back in the early days. They had gone out on their own, as had many other people. Yeah, very. It, it used to be called SMU. SMU, right? Yeah. This universe, this this feeder right. system to other agencies got founded in the. So here's Mordzie working for Stone and Simons where my father recognized how talented he was, wanted him to be in the business. Leonard Simon said, no, look what happened. Um, finally, I think 
as as Mort and Leonard used to tell the story, they they were making a presentation one after the other sequentially to a prospective client, and one was walking in the front door, and the other was never, back I'd never, I'd never heard the old walk that and cross was, on a pitch. That was the story, and that night, you know, that night uh, Leonard relented and said, this seems kind of silly. You right, know? you should be part of our company. We should, yeah. So and that was really the, the beginning of the establishment of the Chinese Wall, because that was 1961 when Mort joined the firm. I didn't come until 1964. But Mort brought, you know, a, a certain level of creativity in, in the broadcast realm, because these, these two guys were trained principally in print. Right, print, and then some radio, outdoor, and now along yeah. comes the ability and, to do and, television. And, yeah. and really, really good with branding stuff. I mean, one of the key accounts that, that Mort developed was Midas Muffler. Mm -hmm. And we actually had two, three, two thirds, I think, of the country in terms of the Midas franchise shops. And he built, he built the, the campaign around when you can hear your muffler, see your Midas man, because it may be before your time, but when mufflers would blow out and they get a hole in them. Yeah, they were noisy. It yeah. would sound like a sports car today, you know, revenue. So, and he created a jingle. He was a jingle writer. When you mm -hmm. can hear your muffler, see your Midas man. It was enormously successful in building that. We had this beer that I mentioned, Pfeiffer, and people like beer in the in bars because it's it's not pasteurized. And when you pasteurize it to put it in bottles, it would it would burn it a little bit. So, and, and I'm not a drinker, so it's just a telling you we know that um, draft beer in, in kegs or draft beer in, the, in a saloon is a lot better, smoother. So we came up with this notion of, uh, they did flash, flash pasteurization, they called it. In theory, it would make the beer taste much more like it did in the bar. Mm -hmm. So we created a campaign that was, and I remember that it was a jingle again, the more on tap and under the cap, it's exactly the same. Draft beer and bottles and Pfeiffer is the name. And that made that into the largest selling beer in Detroit in the face of some other fairly substantial brands in a short period of time. So, I mean, we had, we had, we were pretty good about that. I mean, Cunningham drugstores, we decided maybe we could compete with department stores and we created a concept of, it was like Cunningham's 21, 21 shops under one roof. It was still a drugstore, but we, that. we yeah. hung little pieces of paper that would delineate one area from another. I, there were a few, there were a few like that, but we were always, we were big in branding. We were, we were, we were, we were responsible in large part for building some of these brands that were very young into the marketplace. You know, the velvet peanut butter, the three kids that are on the jar, they're on the jar to this day. Um, and, and so you and Mort are working together. Now the transition from the founders to the two of you as the second generation owners, partners, wasn't silky smooth. Talk about kind of what went down and, and I guess for listeners of this who are either founders or next gen leaders of a business, like what lessons could they, could you impart from that experience in the, I guess in the seventies when that was all going on? Well, it, it wasn't so smooth because I, I had a very good relationship with my father, respectful. I knew 
he was responsible with his partner for building this business. Um, Leonard Simons and, and, and his son-in-law really didn't get along all that well. Um, just because Mort was creative in his own way, he was a little eccentric. Uh, he used to ride his bike from Huntington Woods to downtown. Leonard used to tell him, you're not rich enough to ride your bike and be eccentric downtown. <laughs> so, you know, there were, there were issues. And um, Mort was 15 years older than I was. So he was much more impatient. Um, at the time that we made the transition, which was 1977, Mort had been with the company since 61. So he'd been there quite a long time. Yeah. And, and, and he felt, and it, perhaps rightly so, that founders were, were in their 70s. Um, I was in my 30s. He was in his late 40s, 50 or whatever. And he was anxious to be able to, to grow the business. In right. a way grow it, set the course, be, make some calls, right? Correct. Yeah. And what interesting that they formed this company as a, as a proprietorship, as a partnership. It was not an LLC or a corporation. So they had personal liability yep. the day that they formed the business. And it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I said Leonard was a very astute financial guy. And he was never going to not pay a bill or whatever he, he whatever he had to do. I mean, he honored mm-hmm. every single obligation. We had some concerns about growing the business and pitching clients, where we would be, you know, a, a partnership and not. And, and they resisted us a little bit. So, Mort was responsible for pushing it. Um, my father was fine with the notion of, uh, look, I'm 74 years old. I've been doing this for how long? Since 19. 19- 25 when I was started in the right, business. Right, almost 50 years of, of running a company. Yeah, yep. so I mean, I would, would welcome the second generation to come in. Leonard wasn't quite so agreeable to that, but <laughs> um, we each had a, a different set of lawyers. Uh, and t- truth be told, the, the founders, Simons and Michelson, had the Honigman firm and they had Jason Honigman, who was probably the best lawyer in town, he certainly then, and maybe ever. And he said to them, why are you fighting this, in effect? Oh, he, okay. He, Jason, Jason said that to, to, to my father. My father convinced Leonard, this is the best of both worlds for all of you. You can be, you know, we're not, we, we wanted them to continue. We wanted them to continue to, to, you know, be part of the business. My dad still related to the clients, Leonard, Leonard was more in the back because he was the financial guy. And here we were, we were making those financial decisions. But not, not uncommon, right? That these people that create something don't want to kind of either give up control or who else can run this or. um, Exactly. I think, I think it depends what kind of a parent you are and whether you're a parent or a parent-in-law. I think with respect to my father, he was, he, he, he was very much in favor of uh, the second generation coming along. Leonard, unfortunately, didn't have any any sons. His two daughters didn't want to be part of the business. He was with a son-in-law who he really had some issues with, so he, he didn't embrace this completely. Once it happened, though, once it happened, I think they were they were very, very pleased. No, it was, it was the right thing to do and, and went well at that point, and then 
I think we've had a smoother transition into the third generation. So let's shift gears and look into the future, which is hard to do right now, but the next milestone for the agency, not everything's a milestone, but kind of the idea of centennial or hundred years. What, 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 what excites you about that concept or, or and even what the place might look like and be like? Well, I think, I think without blowing smoke at the third generation, I think you guys, you and your two sisters need to be credited with, you know, taking this maybe, maybe to the next level, taking it to a point where pre-pandemic and all that, um, the company was probably in a stronger position as it's ever been in. I think, I think from my perspective, I always welcomed and hoped that the third generation would come along and have an interest in the business. I know, I know I enjoyed it very much. It wasn't, uh, I want somebody to come in cause I don't want to do this anymore. Right. I just knew that it was a, a very important part of my life that I thought was really good here. You've got a small company, um, that's supporting families. You know, we were not only a family owned business, we really much a family business. Yep. You've said yep. this. business, you know, family, family business. business. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it was a really uh, really felt good to to go to work. It really felt good to be able to to be in on the ground floor of growing clients. I mean, I I felt that the opportunity on the transition was was a good one. Your mom felt that it was interesting in a family dynamic that the three of you would get along as well as you did. It, and establish roles for yourself because we didn't really do that. I think you you did that, right? I mean, the three of you pretty much decided how you were going to divide up responsibilities. You know, in the advertising business, it's, it's you know somebody's got to be the business manager, somebody's account, whatever, somebody's creative. If you can find you know complementary roles, right, and and um, you know support the key clients have a vision for growing the, the business. Um, and I think you all have, I think you all have done that. What is Pam likes to say, your sister likes to say, you know, in, in uh, family, the first generation starts it, the second generation builds it up. The third generation either sells it as, or screws it up. Yeah, it's no, it. the shirt, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves things. It's, that, it's a, it's that, a, has, yeah. that hasn't happened. I, I really do think, you know, I, it's a motivating force. <laughs> It's, I mean, I've taught, you know, doing this podcast, talking to other people that make it to the second, the third, even beyond. And, and that comes up uh, often, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the math of it. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things is the concept or the excitement or the potential of a next gen entering this business. I mean, my kids are off doing other things, but from the cousins consortium. So what advice would you give to what would be someone from, the fourth generation that might be entering this business and what advice should they ignore? What advice should they ignore? So what advice would you give them to enter someone coming into the next generation entering this business or any other family business that's longstanding and what advice should they ignore? Well, I think in the, in the advertising business, I think there's the reputation is that it's glamorous. It's a little Hollywood. People think about making mm -hmm. the that it's, it's 10% that, in ninety percent, right? Sweat and blood and work. Yep. Yep. So I think it's important that you not misrepresent what the business is about. But I can't overemphasize the fact that 
to, to go to work and to be as on the account side where you're working with a variety of different clients and different businesses, how, how much fun it is, how enjoyable it is to, you know, move from conference room to conference room or whatever. And you're in the retail business over here and you're in the peanut butter business over here and you're in the drugstore, but you know, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting. Um, and I think if you have a creative bent a little bit, you can participate in that, whether mm-hmm. you're on the creative side or not, that gives you the opportunity. So, I, I mean, I, I would, I would say if you really are looking for the kind of business that you, you can, you can go to work each day and, and feel like you're, you're energized by what happens and be willing to understand you're working for clients. Uh, you know, somebody famous in this business said, but, um, the business be the greatest business in the world if it wasn't for the clients. That's partially true because there's, but it's reality. But the other part of the reality, and I think your previous boss, because you worked for really one of the, the deans of Detroit advertising was Brad Donor. And I, I remember having lunch with him one day and he said, our business is like a bucket with a hole in it. He said, yeah. you better be pouring water in the top. Cause so the, the reality of, of losing clients for no reason. Right, all those reasons, yeah. The Hugh Blind reasons or something else, yeah. Much worse today than it was because we had these single proprietorships. You had personal relationships. They didn't bring in a marketing director that decided he needed his own person tomorrow. It wasn't that. Um, so you could you could transcend uh, a mistake. You printed something a little bit wrong. It isn't a reason that they're going to fire you because they know that you care. I think you can't overestimate either the importance of building relationships with clients. So you're not just vendors in our business. I think, right. you know, it, maybe it's um, a cliche to say uh, we're partners, but that's what makes it successful. If you truly are partners, if they know that you're committed to their success, because an agency is only as successful as its clients. You can never forget that. And when you go and they say, well, what have you done lately? You tell a story about your clients, right? You don't tell a story about something that happened in the agency. Nobody no. cares. About that. Right. Yeah, so, it is, it's about, and, and it's funny that you talk about variety of businesses that you had, have, that we have now, where so many agencies or that other consultants want us to be so vertically specific, you know, to be a healthcare agency or, or be a, Packaged goods or pharmaceutical agency, or like, but then you don't have the variety of businesses to go from room to room that you're talking about. I, I guess I'll keep well, fighting. But we, that. we had for, for for some reason, you know, we're in an automotive town. We never were going to get an automotive account. I think it took donor forty years or something when you finally got the Mazda account. But we had a lot of automotive after right business. The adjacency and, things, yeah. We we had Midas, we had we had Amco, we had tire business, but for some reason there was a, a, a fairly long period of time, maybe because it was the heritage where we we did a lot of retail, and retail is dynamic. It's it's of the moment. A lot of agencies didn't want to do that. They want more time to think about. They want you know it's not the most creative, glamorous kind of work that you do. But for quite a period of time we did that, and I think I kind of cut my teeth on that. Yeah. And, and and that's the most intense where, you know, we're sales up yesterday. No, then we better do something today. And I do think it is in the, 
the soul or the DNA of the agency, retail mentality, approach, speed, to be thinking that way. Even if retail is now e-commerce, it's still retail. That's right. It's actually faster, uh, right? I order it and there it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're trying to figure that piece out. Uh, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't say what advice this next gen should ignore. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer. I, it, <laughs> on the question list. I don't, I don't know. Do you have a thought on, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think there's no, there's no assurance maybe that there's continuity and continuation guaranteed in a, in a family business. You're coming in the fourth generation. Not, not many of them make it. You know, and that's a good, that's a, it's, I don't know if it's advice, but just the concept of there's no sure things, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, there's a story I think I've told you. I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel with Steve Karp, who's the Hiram Walker client. We were working at the pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel and having lunch outside. And celebrities used to have themselves paged all the time there. Remember there was a little Philip Morris guy who would come around with Matt at that hotel. But anyway, Mike Wallace, Chris Wallace's father, the famous news guy, he, he's paged and he gets up and he walks by the table, he goes to pick up the phone by the pool. And I'm sitting there having lunch. Well, I didn't know Mike Wallace, I knew of Mike Wallace. He graduated from the University of Michigan. And he was one of the first newscasters that my father helped get a job at WJR. So when Cunningham's News Ace, and that, that was one of the big things that the agency's responsible for, you know, the 60 second newscast, they did the first one, Cunningham's News Ace, zooms into your home and literally they would give 60 seconds of headline instead of a 30 minute news show or five minute news show or whatever but anyway so my dad had a relationship he knew the guy so mike wallace comes by the table and i'm sitting there and he just took a french fry off my plate so i use that as a i said to him uh, I, I said i'm jim michelson i said you know my father is larry michelson i know you worked at jr i know and uh uh, he, we started talking about Cunningham's because Cunningham's news ace. He said, yeah, Cunningham's. He said, uh, how's Nate Shapiro? Nate Shapiro was the founder. Nate Shapiro died. His son took the company over. Ray okay. Shapiro. Should I say this on the podcast? And yeah, it's about, this is about family generational businesses. So Nate, Nate was a pharmacist, as I said. He was a smart guy. He was a visionary. Ray was uh, a maverick and didn't fit anybody's mold. He had mutton chops. Anyway, uh, he asked me about, uh, about Nature Pro. I said, well, Nature Pro passed away. This is, I'm talking to Mike Wallace. He said, well, what about the company? I said, well, his son took it over. And I, and I said, well, how's it doing? I said, well, well not so good. I said, hmm. uh, they're having problems. He said, you know, he said, the first generation, he said, it's great. He said, you get past that. He said, there's no chance. He said, there. I said, well, Mike, that's not always true. <laughs> I'm the representative. So, you know, the point being, though, that you look at percentages, how many get to the third yep. generation, there aren't a whole lot. And I don't think in, in service businesses that there are a whole lot. So I think it's a real credit to do that, to be there. And I think it's a challenge to whoever would come in you know, the, the business has changed, you know, more than I about the whole digital thing and all that, which 
is really kind of right. Yeah. No, I, I think, I mean, if I guess if I'm ever in the hot seat with Chris Wallace, I know what I can play, but uh, the idea that it's, it's, it's challenging and, but doing this podcast is celebrating those people and those stories that come out of these generational family businesses and there's parallels and then there's some things that are, you know, unique to each of them. What I guess I'll, I'll, I'll wrap on the question that's kind of fun that I've asked everybody, which is just what's the most fulfilling thing for you about what was SM Co or Simons Michelson company that became Simons Michelson's Eve or we go by SMZ. Uh, what's the most fulfilling thing for you about this special generational business? Well, I've, I've loved, I've loved the opportunity that I had. I was really happy with the decision that I made because from the time I started, I, I really, I really enjoyed just the, the, the nature of the business. I enjoyed, if I look back, being in on the ground floor of actually having helped create some brands from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So Walter Scott's story, I told you, I was, I, I, I was, I was working alongside my father, and that was a just a, you know a, a labor of love for him to make that happen, and I was really pleased to be part of that. I felt when we made the transition in 1977, we became Simon's Michelson's Eve that the, the, and transition the business, that we were gonna go after different kinds of clients. That was the time that we were able to get the big boy account. Uh, I was somewhat responsible for that. I have to tell this part of the story because mm-hmm. we, had, we, had we had three people come into the office. We were downtown the Lafayette building and they represented a client called Red Barn. And they had, I don't know, 10, 12 stores and restaurants. And Mort had gone to school with one of them, the woman. Her name was Mary Palomada. And we went back in the conference room, and I I was smoking cigars in those days. And I went back, and she said, um, that stinks, which she was right to say. And, and, I, and I didn't comment. I was, and she said, um, either that goes or I go. So I got up and I left. And I went to put it out, but I got, anyway, the, the offshoot was we did not obviously get very <laughs> right. It was within, seriously, within days that the Elias brothers put the big boy account up. We were late really in, in they, I think they had presentations and all that, but, Mort had been counting on maybe this piece of business. We didn't get it. So we got into that. So my contribution to us getting Big Boy was... Not winning the other one. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, the Big Boy restaurants were an account for almost 40 years, right? 35, yeah. 36 years. And, and I would say that, yes, I, I would say that as an agency, our, our record of longevity with clients was remarkable. The turnover was, was small because... Our management style was we were committed to servicing those clients with the most integrity. We took nothing for granted. We worked as hard as we could and we kept them. And I think that was the biggest compliment to me over the years that you would be part of something for a long period of time. We had one client who said, I would rather have Simons Michelson company than I think it was spending my money than 
anybody else because they yeah. knew we took it so seriously, you know, and, you know, I, I guess that, that you, you just look back and you say, did I feel good about the way I treated people? Am I happy with it? And we did. We were respectful, nice. always respectful, never, never did try to go around the client. My dad taught me that lesson. Don't ever try to go higher up. Right. Some of the same principles from all the other people who wrote books of stay out of the client politics. And I've stay translated that concept of do all the stuff we're supposed to do for the client plus something a little extra. All, and then as long as we were doing that little bit more, we can keep it for a long, long time. And the, and, and the distinction is when you're in the client service business, you know, a lawyer, an accountant, advertising, you have assignments that you're, you're given. You do them every day. But at the end of the year, when the client looks back and says, you know, what do these yeah. contribute? It's, you, you have to be taking the initiative. You have to yes. be, they have to believe that you gave them something a little bit extra. And I think we always did that. I think that was always a, a principle. They could look back and, and feel that we were a significant part of their success. And that was always very rewarding to me. Well, that captures it very nicely. Uh, I thank you, Dad. Jim Michelson also was J-A-M by the initials within the agency because I think the concept of this podcast called generational excellence. I mean, we accent the gen and the X cause that's the generation I'm from, but it's, it to kind of have these and, and chronicle these stories of, of businesses that have family and business and connection and relationships. And I mean, I'm proud to be part of it. It's we're, we're conducting this, you know, in the 2020 interviews for this podcast are, uh, a tough year, but I think, you know, only further inspiration to keep grinding through it. Anything else I forgot to touch on or um, get to? I just, I was looking at your sheet. Let me see. I, 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 I bounce around, but. I, I'm not playing the guitar. You are. Okay. <laughs> not very poorly. <laughs> I, I still pick courses and stuff, as you know. Um, I think I think our family dynamic is unique in 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 a way with this business too. Um, in what we, way? Well, I, I you know when when I came in, and um, I was working with my father, I think we still had the same relationship that we always had um, as, as growing up. It was never as though uh, I'm going to treat you differently because you know you work for me or. <laughs> Um, I'm going to resist ideas. You know, you go off to the Wharton School, like we did, and I'd, Leonard assumed you're going to come back with all kinds of different ideas and tell them how to make sausages differently. We didn't do that. It was always collaborative. Hmm. And, I, and I think your generation, following me and our, my generation, was the same way. It was it was collaborative. We didn't we didn't we didn't we didn't fight about things. You know, if if there was a disagreement or whatever, talk it through. I, I think that is one of the big successes too of this company is you don't make decisions just because it's either you, you know you bring other people in and you That's talk. That's nice. Yep, that is that is true, and I think we will stick to that. Right. I mean, yes. And you've got a management team now that is making decisions in terms of the future of the company. Yeah. Which I think 
I mean, on the national level, we're talking, you know, talking apolitically, but about being better and stronger together. Yeah, it, you're right. Yeah. It's, it is a team effort. Thank you, Dad. I think this was, this was great. Thank you, Ellie. It's fun. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Sam Daly, Eric Head, and Joel Bienenfeld at SMZ for helping make Generation Excellence, well, excellent. Until next time, I'm Jamie Michelson.